Years ago, Bill Hybels shared how he had seen a newscast about a big Vietnam veterans parade in Chicago. Part of the commemoration was a mobile version of the Vietnam Wall. You've probably seen that traversing the country in years past. Like the original, it bore the names of all the soldiers who had died in Vietnam. Heibel said one newscaster asked a vet why he had come all the way to Chicago to visit this memorial and to participate in the parade. The soldier looked straight into the face of the reporter and with tears flowing down his face said, because of this man right here. And as the soldier talked, He was pointing to the name of a friend that was etched on the wall. And he traced the letters of his friend's name in the wall with his finger. And the soldier continued to answer the reporter by saying, This man, this man right here gave his life for me. He gave his life for me as he traced his name on the wall. And as the news clip ended, the sobbing soldier let the tears flow as he stood there tracing the name of his friend with his finger. It was hard for that man to get his heart and his mind around the sacrifice that his friend had made for him. So he kept retracing the story. Freedom isn't free. And we all in this room certainly should regularly thank God for the men and women who pay for our freedom with their lives. And we should thank those who serve our country that we might live in worship, in freedom. Well, Forgiveness isn't free either. We possess an eternal inheritance because of an infinite sacrifice. The forgiver always pays the cost of forgiveness. The forgiven learns to appreciate the forgiveness. To accept forgiveness humbles us. Christ sacrificed his life for you, for me. And really all we can do is retrace the story of his sacrifice with thanksgiving to God. The book of Hebrews is tracing his name over and over and over again. And we should never, ever take his sacrifice for granted. Will you look with me at Hebrews chapter 9? And we're looking at verses 15 to 22 as we continue our study this morning. First of all, Christ's death mediates his New Testament. Verse 15 of Hebrews 9. And for this reason, he, that is Jesus Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant 
in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For this reason, he begins. He is the mediator of the new covenant. For what reason? Well, that takes us back to what we studied two weeks ago. You look for that reason in verse 14. Because the blood of Christ was necessary to cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Now, a mediator is one who stands in the middle. In fact, the Greek word means someone in the middle. Between two parties. Jesus stands in the middle between you and God, between me and God, to mediate the terms of the new contract that God makes with us, the new covenant. Now, the new covenant accomplishes what the old covenant could never accomplish, as we studied a couple of weeks ago. The new covenant cleanses us from the inside out. The old covenant could not cleanse the inner man because only the blood of Christ could cleanse the soul from sin. Now, the new contract that Christ makes with us is not a two-way contract. You know, when we sign a contract, usually two parties sign that contract, right? This contract is a one-way contract or a unilateral contract. Christ declares his initiative to cleanse us by his blood. It is his contract that he makes with us. And all we do with this contract is accept it. That's what faith is. It's accepting the contract that he makes. The word covenant is most commonly used in the Greek literature of the first century for a last will and testament. That's the way the author of Hebrews is going to develop the thought here in chapter 9. Christ is establishing then his last will and testament by his death on the cross. So Christ's death mediates his new last will and testament to us. Redemption the author says in verse 15, was accomplished on the basis of Christ's death. The the word redemption means to release someone from captivity or from bondage or from penalty by paying a price to buy that person back. It refers to an acquittal in a court of law for for the violations that have been committed. But the acquittal could be declared because Christ made the payment for those violations. The concept of substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man, John Stott wrote in The Cross of Christ. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man, for you, for me. Christ's death substituted for our death. 
His payment was in place of our payment for sin. That is the heart of the gospel. We were in bondage because of the sins, the violations we had committed. But His payment for those sins released us from the obligation to pay for those sins. We deserve to die. He died in our place. He took our place. And when we accept His payment for our sins, then we can be cleansed. See, the problem is, as long as we try to do it all ourselves, then we will never enjoy the release from the bondage of sin. It's only when we stop trying to fix ourselves spiritually. It's only when we stop trying to pull ourselves up spiritually by our bootstraps and make ourselves right. And we can accept His grace to change us. It's only then that we find spiritual freedom. Freedom and forgiveness are not not free. They require the sacrifice of Christ in our place, an infinite sacrifice. Now notice that Verse 15 tells us that this release, this redemption, this acquittal is not just for us. The verse is actually talking about how Jesus came to die for the violations of those who committed them under the first covenant, the old covenant. The covenant that the new covenant replaced. It's for the violations of the people under that covenant that Jesus died as well. They lived long before Jesus lived. But His death on the cross was the basis for releasing them from their sins. Paul in Romans 3.25 told us that God, that God covered over the sins of the people in the Old Testament until Christ could come to pay for those sins. Whom, that is Christ Jesus... Paul was writing in Romans 3, Christ Jesus, God displayed publicly as a propitiation. That's a satisfactory payment. In His blood, through faith, this was to demonstrate His righteousness, God's righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. He covered them over. He passed over those sins that had been committed in the Old Testament. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, if you will. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, Christ's death on the cross was the basis for their salvation too. It is the basis for salvation in all ages and all generations. There is only ever, ever one payment for sin. And that is the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's never been and never will be any other payment for sin than the death of Christ. Abraham was saved by the death of Christ just as much as I am saved by the death of Christ. And we go back then to the analogy of the debit or credit card just to rehearse that for a minute. Moses was saved on credit. Jesus would later pay his debt, but he was saved when he trusted God for his salvation. The Old Testament saint was essentially slapping down his credit card by faith every time he performed one of those sacrifices. 
If it was genuine in his heart and it was genuinely done in faith before God and trusting God, he's essentially slapping down his credit card. (laughs) God, you pay for this. I haven't got it. And God promised to honor that debt one day when Jesus Christ came to pay for that debt. So Moses was saved on credit and Christ paid his credit card. But we're saved on debit. Because Christ has already died. He's already paid for your sins and mine. And we are accepting that payment on our behalf. The whole purpose was so that we could all receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. That's not just us. That's Moses and Abraham and all of those Old Testament saints too. They get to receive the promise of eternal inheritance as well. When we join in eternity future, we join with the people, God's people from all ages and all generations, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and worshiping Him eternally, enjoying the inheritance we all get from Him. There are no second-class citizens in eternity future. Jesus bought our inheritance for us on the cross. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, tells us that God has caused us to be born again with a living hope through Jesus Christ to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our inheritance, your inheritance, is secure in Christ. We wait on the Lord for that, as we sang this morning. But our inheritance is secure in Him. It is reserved in heaven for us. It is reserved for every one of us who are kept or protected by the very power of God until we can receive the inheritance He's promised to us. We are protected by the power of God until we can enjoy that inheritance. Isn't that blessed? Your inheritance is secure. You don't have to worry that someone's going to spend it before you get it. Your spiritual 401k will not be spent on someone else. You will get heaven and God won't... You won't get to heaven and God says, Oops, sorry about this. I spent it all. Sorry, none left for you doesn't work that way. That's not going to happen because Christ guarantees that inheritance by his blood on the cross. Secondly, Christ's death was necessary to execute his will. Verse 16, for where a covenant, a testament is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Now, the whole argument here hinges on the legal issues of a last will and testament. I mean, it's common knowledge that a last will and testament cannot be executed or carried out or disposed of until the testator dies. That's the way it works. I mean, Janie and I have a last will and testament, but it won't be executed until we die. Not that there's a whole lot to execute there, but it is what it is. 
That's the way a last will and testament works. It requires the death of the testator. Jesus Christ is the testator. He wrote his last will and testament in his blood. And the will has no power unless he dies first. And then the will can be executed, can be disposed of. So Jesus is the testator of this will, but he's also the executor of the will. He died to put his will into action, and he carries out that will on our behalf. He is both testator and executor of his last will and testament. Now that can't happen to you and me in life. An executor has to be alive to carry out the terms of the one who died. Jesus Christ can carry out the terms of his own will because he rose from the dead and is very much alive today. So he can be the executor of his own will as well as the testator who had to die. And this, by the way, is where the argument in Hebrews is going. And I I just want to stop and sort of tie that together as we move ahead before we come back to this passage. You look down to the end of chapter 9 and verse 27 as he concludes this little section, and he says, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this judgment, so Christ, verse 28, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, having died, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. That second time isn't to pay for sin. He's already paid for sin. The second time is to give us our inheritance, to execute his last will and testament, to those who eagerly await him. You drop down to chapter 10 and verse 19. 10 verse 19. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. See, he died. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See? It's coming. And he's faithful to his promise. And he will carry out that last will and testament. And he will give us our inheritance that he guarantees by his blood. Christ is your priest. I'm not your priest. No man is your priest. Christ is our priest and he carries out the terms of his own last will and testament. And that's our great hope in him. Our eternal inheritance. And I wanted you to see that that's where the argument of Hebrews is going. But now let's come back to our passage. Because in our passage, the emphasis isn't upon how that will gets executed. It's on the fact that the death was necessary to put it into effect. A last will and testament cannot be executed until the one who makes that last will and testament dies. The promise of our eternal inheritance has No value, zero value, apart from the death of Christ. There's no Christianity without that. There's no hope. There's no eternal inheritance. There's nothing. It has zero value unless Jesus Christ died. We have an eternal inheritance because the one who bought and paid for that inheritance has now died. And he left us with this absolutely certain hope. 
You know what? All too often, we take that so for granted, don't we? We ignore what he has done for us. Except maybe once a week when we come to church and some preacher reminds us once in a while. We fail to value what the Lord has done. Think about that. In your place, he sacrificed. What do we give back to him? How does that change our lives? What Christ has done for us should fill our lives every single day with thanksgiving and joy as we value the inheritance he's left for us and as we retrace that story with our fingers. He died that we might have that. Stan Caffey prepared for a married life with his bride-to-be. And so they decided to clean out their respective garages. They sold everything to Goodwill. And between the two of them, they sold an assortment of clothes and bicycles and tools and computer parts and a tattered copy of the Declaration of Independence that Stan had had hanging in his garage for the last decade. Well... Stan's trash turned out to be another man's treasure. That particular version of the Declaration of Independence was a rare copy made in 1823. A man named Michael Sparks spotted it. He purchased the document for $2.48. Sparks later auctioned it for $477,650. Not a bad profit. Caffey, the previous owner, was later quoted as saying, I'm happy for the Sparks guy. If I still had it, it would still be hanging here in the garage, and I still wouldn't know it was worth all that. It's sad to say, but that is the way it is with us and our spiritual inheritance in Christ all too often. We sort of hang it up in the garage. It's nice to know it's there, but we've forgotten or long since neglected the value. We bring it out on Sunday once in a while. Mostly we consider it far less important than my plans for this coming Wednesday or Thursday. Those are the important things for most of us. For many, salvation even gets set aside for years and all but forgotten as we pursue our goals in life. We forget that Christ's death cleanses the sins of his people. There is infinite value in what he has done. Verse 18, Therefore even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, 
there is no forgiveness. So now our author goes all the way back to the sacrifices under the Old Covenant to illustrate the importance of Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. Now, remember, he is writing to Jewish Christians, right? who understood the Old Testament. They understood the law. They understood the sacrificial system very well. In fact, they were in danger of reverting back to that system. The first covenant, he says, was established in blood. With blood. The old covenant was a blood covenant. God commanded that the blood of bulls and goats was necessary to cleanse the tabernacle, the instruments of worship, the people. So the priest would take that sacrifice on the altar, and he would take the blood of that sacrifice, and he would sprinkle it on on the instruments of worship in the tabernacle, and he would sprinkle it around the altar, and he would sprinkle it in the tabernacle, and he would sprinkle it on the people. Because the old covenant was a blood covenant. And that was the way they were cleansed by the blood. And he says, in fact, nearly everything there was cleansed by blood. And apart from the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness. God cannot pardon our sins without a blood payment for those sins. And so they were trusting God to pay for their sins by that blood payment. Why? Well, we go back to the law for an answer. The law said in Leviticus chapter 17, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Life is precious to God. All life is precious to God. The life of all animals, the life of all humans is in the blood. The blood is the symbol of life. And God values life. It is precious to him. Our sins mean we deserve to die. Our sins, and we don't think of it this way, but our sins are capital offenses against God. They deserve and require a blood payment for the life is in the blood. And it is the blood that makes atonement for sin. To make atonement for those violations. The blood of bulls and goats covered those sins, of course, until the blood of Christ could make the final payment. But nevertheless, it was still a blood covenant that was necessary. I've used this illustration before, but... Hopefully it bears repeating here. Many years ago when I was in seminary, I worked as a desk clerk and a janitor at a vocational college. And I remember this one particular young lady who liked to engage, she was a student at the vocational college, and she liked to engage me in in religious discussions. She didn't believe in Jesus Christ. She didn't trust Christ. She wasn't a Christian. But she loved to talk about religious things. And so many a night we would end up there in the office discussing religious things, and I was only too happy to do that. I asked her once, why don't you believe in Jesus? Why don't you accept Jesus? And she said it's because of the sacrificial system in the Bible. 
I said, what do you mean? She said, well, it's offensive to me. You see, she was a vegetarian. She was a vegetarian, and she believed all life was precious. And, and yet, in the Bible, there's all this blood sacrifice. And it's abhorrent, she said. It's offensive to me. And I just can't get past that. And I said, well, that's interesting. Because it's offensive to God, too. She, what? She said she was kind of surprised. What do you mean? I said, well, isn't that the whole point? Isn't that the whole point of the blood sacrifice? Yes, all life is precious to God. But our sins are so horrible and so terrible that the only payment for them was a blood sacrifice, life for life. And that's offensive, yes. But it's the only way to pay for our sins. And Jesus, when he died, he paid the ultimate blood sacrifice because your life is precious, but your sins are awful. She said, well, i got to think about that one. I left, came back here to Maine, and a few years later I did, to finish the story, because some of you don't like it when I don't finish stories, right? <laughs> I usually hear about that, so I'll finish the story. A few years later, back here in Maine, I heard from some friends that she had accepted Christ as her personal Savior. She was an active member of a, of a Bible-believing church out there in Indiana. But you see, the whole point of the sacrificial system is that sin is absolutely abhorrent. Not just sin in the abstract. Not just sin out there that somebody else does. You know, Hitler or somebody else. Yeah, they're kind of abhorrent. No, your sin is abhorrent. My sin is offensive. And the only payment is a blood payment. That's how bad our sin is. Mark Galley, writing in Christianity Today magazine, commented about our moral outrage over the bonuses at AIG. Over 400 employees received bonuses. Three-fourths of the company received more than $100,000 apiece. 51 employees received between $1 to $2 million. 15 executives received more than $2 million, and 6 received $4 million, and the highest bonus stood at $6.4 million. $165 million in bonuses to a company that had failed and was causing great harm to people, individuals, and to our economy. Bonuses given in the company were inflicting distress on millions of people. President Obama said it made him angry. Comedian Stephen Colbert says he wanted to lead a pitchfork-wielding mob after those executives. Senator Chuck Grassley said the executives should fall on their swords. I don't know if he meant that literally or not. Representative Paul Hodes said the company's initials now stand for arrogance, incompetence, and greed. It's a scandal. A national folly, people said. We want our money back. 
Why don't we think about think like that about heaven? Heaven's a scandal. Heaven's totally unfair. But that's the nature of the gospel. If we really believed what the Bible tells us, we would be far more scandalized by what we preach every, every week in church than by the AIG bonuses. The very people who have filled our world with problems call them sins, because that's what the Bible calls them, and inflict pain and suffering and hurt on people, are the very people who get forgiven by the one who died in their place. In fact, we all are a lot more like the executives of AIG when it comes to heaven. Heaven is surely worth much more than $6.4 million dollars. It's eternal. And yet you and I get it, even though we've hurt and sinned and failed and blown it and inflicted pain on others, simply because he paid for it and we accept it. Not one person in this room deserved heaven. Not one of you, not me. None of us deserve heaven. It's a scandal because of what he's done for us. He was a scandal on the cross. And there are some people who can't get their heads around that, can they? We sin, he dies, we get heaven when we reach out and take the bonus from his bloody hands. Wow. Who can understand that kind of logic? But it's God's logic. And it's the logic of the gospel. We get it all, though we deserve it not at all. All we have to do is accept our eternal inheritance from his bloody hand. The article in the Washington Post last September 16, 2009 began with these words. The king folds her own laundry, chauffeurs herself around Washington in a 1992 Honda, and answers her own phone and her boss's phone too. The article was about Peggy Lean Bartels, secretary to the Ghanaian embassy in Washington for 30 years. She's originally from, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but Otuom, Ghana, a small city of about 7,000 people. When the 90-year-old king of Atuam, Ghana, died. The elders did what they always have done, a ritual to determine the next king. They prayed, and they poured schnapps on the ground while they read the names of the king's 25 relatives. And when steam rose from the schnapps on the ground, the name that they were reading at that moment would be the new king. And that's exactly what happened when they read Peggy Lean's name. So now Peggy Lean is a king. And yes, by the way, she is a king, not a queen. When she pointed out to the elders that she is a woman, they replied by saying that the office of king was the only post open, (laughs) not queen. And when she goes back to Ghana, she has a driver and a chef and an eight-bedroom palace, though it needs a little repair. 
She has power to resolve disputes, appoint elders, manage more than 1,000 acres of family-owned land. I'm a big-time king, you know, she told the reporter. When she returned for her coronation, they carried her through the streets on a litter. She even wore a heavy gold crown. Paul Schwartzman, the reporter, wrote, In the humdrum of ordinary life, people periodically yearn for something unexpected and undeserved, some kind of gilded escape, delivered perhaps by an unanticipated inheritance or winning the lottery ticket. We all want that sort of thing, right? Wow. She got the unexpected and she got the undeserved. But as you think about her story, that's exactly like our inheritance with God. First Peter, Peter wrote, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We are blessed with great riches that have elevated us to a different status altogether. We get much more than a kingdom in Ghana or, a, or Powerball wealth or AIG bonuses. Peter says we have an eternal inheritance reserved in heaven for us and we are protected by the hand of the Lord until we can enjoy that inheritance one day. Isn't that worth celebrating as Christians? Father, teach us to be thankful, not just in a worship service where we sing nice hymns and express words to you, but every day of our lives to retrace the story of your love and realize that in our place, Jesus, you died, that we might one day enjoy the eternal inheritance that you promise us. In your name, we give you thanks. Amen.